0: This might be one of the most important things we can do together that's foundational to the quality of life. So for all the topics that we've been discussing of population change and quality of life, central to that is having an accurate count
1: for the decennial census. Hello and welcome to The Guidepost, a podcast from the William Winter Institute. I'm Jake McGraw. This is the second half of my conversation with Dr. John Green. John is a professor of sociology at the University of Mississippi and the director of the Center for Population Studies. He also serves as the vice chair of Mississippi's Complete Count Committee, which is spearheading the campaign to ensure that every Mississippian is counted in this year's census. If you haven't listened to part one of our conversation about Mississippi's population trends, I encourage you to do that. But if you haven't yet, you can still jump into this conversation about the 2020 census. In every year ending in zero, going all the way back to 1790, The census has attempted to count every person who lives in the United States. The Constitution requires a full count every 10 years in order to apportion congressional representation among the states. But today it is used for so much more than that. Billions of dollars in federal funding for schools and roads and other critical needs are divided according to those census results. The census, like most government paperwork, may seem boring on the surface. But at its core, the census is... Really about who matters in our country and who does not. About whose voices are heard and whose are not. Look no further than the Constitution's original three-fifths clause, which dealt with the question of how to count enslaved people. Or more recently, the debate about the Trump administration's proposal to ask people whether or not they're a U.S. citizen on the census form. Now, it's worth emphasizing that the courts ruled that there will not be a citizenship question on this year's census. And also that everybody's personal information, no matter their immigration status or anything else, is entitled to a legal guarantee of privacy. But the concerns are real, as are the costs of letting anybody living in our communities go uncounted. The U.S. Census Bureau will conduct the official count, what they call enumeration, but we can't leave it up to them alone to get the word out. The practical challenges of counting 330 million people Mean that inevitably many people are missed. Statistically speaking, the people most likely to go undercounted are racial minorities, or people living in poverty, or people who are living in rural areas. Most Mississippians fall into one or more of those categories. And since Mississippi derives a higher share of its budget from the federal government than any other state, the cost of undercounting our state's population could be very large indeed. The Complete Count Committee that John is a part of is leading the effort within Mississippi to raise awareness and encourage participation, particularly in those places known to be most at risk of an undercount. We pick up the conversation with John by talking about what Mississippians can expect from this year's census.
0: Decennial census is critical for not only our understanding of these issues, but then also how do we manage from a policy perspective the variety of different programs and the funding that goes along with those at the national, state, and even local level. These data are critical. And to understand that with the decennial census and the 2020 census upon us, that this is our one big chance to to get good, solid data that's going to have implications for the next 10 years. Mississippi has a history of lower levels of participation in the census. We're not the lowest nationally, but not where we want to be, right? We want to have as accurate as account as possible so that we're making the right decisions. Impacts our political representation. The decennial census is required in the Constitution for the purposes of apportionment of our representation in government, but it's used for so many other things besides apportionment, besides redistricting, which are the two kind of big things politically and legally, but in terms of all of the different allocations of funding and resources, whether that's education, healthcare, infrastructure, topics like we've discussed with roads and bridges and water system, when we think about programs to help, for example, with nutrition and to address hunger and food insecurity, that the census data are the core to that. Decennial census is required as a part of the Constitution for the purposes of determining our political representation in the House of Representatives, and so that process for determining that statistically is called apportionment, so that the vision is that representation, one man, one vote type of model, needs to also be in terms of translated in terms of which states, how many representatives they have. And so we use census data
1: to make that determination by law. It's required constitutionally at the federal level uh, in Congress, but the census data is also used to draw state legislative maps. It's used to draw city council districts down to your, your precinct where you vote. All of these lines are often redrawn That's on right. the same cycle. And using the same set of data, which comes from the census.
0: Yes. And if you think about for both the apportionment, which, you know, the big concern for Mississippi that we discuss is maintaining at least our number of representatives. And then secondly, the concern over when these data do come about redistricting efforts, as, as you mentioned, the implications are fundamental to what our democracy looks like every time this, we go through this process. And for those of us that are concerned, you know, with issues of uh, social justice and equity, this is paramount because it'll have the census data have implications for a wide variety of voting rights issues. When we say that it's required by law that we do this, that the, not just on all the funding issues that we've been discussing, but the very shape of our government is based on the use of these data. They have implications because not only For the year 2020, but then the population estimates that follow, that are done on an annual basis, use that as their foundational measure. The American Community Survey, which is the the world's largest ongoing annual survey, over 3 million households a year, uses decennial census geographic infrastructure and population, understanding of the population for sampling, is legally connected to the census And the list goes on and on about how those different data sources are connected and what they mean for issues around policy. And so we want to make sure that we have the best count possible an accurate count. To do that requires a lot of mobilization. So we've been talking about collective action. To have an accurate census requires collective action. You mentioned the Complete Count Committee. We have a state-level Complete Count Committee that's very diverse in terms of different groups in society that are represented, different sectors like education and nonprofits and businesses and military, different sectors within our society that we want to do outreach and education and also promotion with. And we collaborate with the state government. We collaborate with the Census Bureau to help do that. And then communities have their own Complete Count Committees all across the state. Not every community, but there are local neighborhoods, there are cities, there are counties, and then a variety of different associations of nonprofits and businesses and churches that are forming Complete Count Committees so that they can really tailor it to what's happening there and what's going to resonate and what are the issues or what are the concerns The 2020 census will be the first time that a majority of people will be asked to participate in the census online, which I think is very exciting to be able to kind of harness the ability to use the Internet to be more efficient. That'll allow us to target resources better, allow the Census Bureau to be able to really focus where they send out enumerators and that sort of thing. But there are also challenges related to that in places that maybe don't have as good of access to broadband, where there may be lower levels of computer use that we have to give attention to those issues. It's the places that are most likely to be undercounted that need the best count even more, right, because of the resources that are tied to that. Collectively, through the complete count committees, through the census, we are trying to say, what are the places where we think there's likely to be an undercount in those places, what are the kind of hardest to count groups and geographies, and then really focus a great deal of attention on them, as well as you can imagine statewide efforts of, you know, why this matters. So we're using kind of two taglines that fit in with our discussion today. One is we count to say Mississippi, we count collectively that we want to stand up and be counted, so to speak. And then secondly, we're saying count me in, count me in for better education, count me in for better roads and bridges, or any of those issues that we've talked about, that it's a matter of actively, proactively engaging with the census. With our work using these data, I guess I self-identify as a data nerd, and most people would say that's accurate. But the implications, as we've been discussing, are almost overwhelming when we think about it. And just a minor example to demonstrate that, our partners with the uh, Mississippi Kids Count program, we did a, an initiative together called Mississippi You count We're really focusing on places where we thought that children were likely to be undercounted. Young children are the most likely to be undercounted. And so we are focusing attention on using community engagement as a strategy to address that. And then what we learned from that, that could be shared with other communities. And they estimated through our collaboration and looking at a lot of data that Mississippi loses about $2,700 per year per student or per child that goes undercounted. So if you think about the implications for schools, for families, for local communities, for programs that are so essential like Head Start, there's an overwhelming implication. I lose sleep (laughs) over it. And it seems like when we talk about data, it's kind of all this nerdy issue of demographic analysis, but that it might be in terms of what unites us, whether it's different political parties or ideologies or religious beliefs, that for so many of the issues that I think there's common interest in, some level of collective agreement, this might be one of the most important things we can do together that's foundational to the quality of life. So, for all the topics that we've been discussing of population change and quality of life, central to that is having a, an accurate count for the decennial census, and then also for what the implications are for all those other data products, we live in a in a world that is informed by, governed by the utilization of data.
1: yeah, I want to just underscore that the census, which is boring and bureaucratic in a lot of ways and therefore I think very easy to. Underestimate the consequences and the importance of the Constitution requires a very old fashioned (laughs) approach to this. Every 10 years, every person in the country has to be counted. In your line of work, your advanced statistical models, all of the big data that we're so familiar with today, and all of the other sources of individualized information that we know is out there, that's not what the Constitution requires. They require a Account count in which everybody has to essentially raise your hand and say, I'm here. Right. As you said, this year is the first year in which most people will be asked to do that online, but we know that that doesn't reach everybody. The cost of undercounting in some ways is as costly, perhaps it's more costly in some ways, than the net loss of a person if someone moves away to another state. You know, If they're not counted in the census, even if they're still here, it's as if with respect to a lot of very important federal programs, it is as if they don't live here anymore. And yet, if they do, they're still going to be consuming services, need services, need assistance. And yet, because the census forms the basis for the allocation of a lot of this money that goes directly to the states and directly to communities, we're not going to be getting as much as it takes to do what needs to be done. You know, we're not going to be getting as a state and as a community, all of the money that basically our fair share. And so it, it can be some ways more costly Right. If they are still here and are not counted. You know, we know that places in the state that are, we do see the most population loss and out migration. And we see these vicious cycles that are underfunding infrastructure and making it harder to keep businesses open and afloat in these areas. Those are the places that are going to receive a disproportionately large amount of this federal funding. And yet we also know that those are places that by their nature are the hardest to count everybody. What are the efforts that are being made to try to reach those people that are hardest to count? And what can we do as Mississippians to try to make sure that we're all counted? Great questions, because
0: there are so many ways that are fairly simple that people can engage with. And, you know, as a starting place for all the implications of the use of these data, we think about in terms of our kind of civic duty, civic responsibility, Obviously, voting is important. I would say second to that in terms of an individual act is participating in the census because it's not just, you know, an issue of you as an individual, but it has implications for your neighborhood, for your community, for the state, for the nation. That's part of civic engagement, really framing it along those lines. Of course, we use strategies, you know, the Census Bureau is full of social scientists, demographers and economists and sociologists and psychologists who are trying to say, how do we ensure that we're using methods that give us the best count possible? And then of course, we've got to balance that with all the political issues on how we do it. The other thing that I want to emphasize before getting to the things that people can do, as we mentioned, the pushes for as many people to complete online as possible, but it's not the only way that people will be able to participate, most households will get a mailing that will tell them about how to participate online, give them the web address, give them the codes and so forth that are needed. But there will also be the potential to call. There will also be the opportunity to request a paper version. Non-respondents will get a paper version. And then there's also the in-person enumerators. And so there's going to be multiple efforts, even for those people who don't respond online. And I bring that up because it, every one of those modes create new ways in which we can engage. With the 2020 census, the website for completing is structured such that you can move between different languages in real time. It's, it's a very engaging Site, But also that if somebody prefers, they can do a paper version or have an enumerator. And even the enumeration, personal enumeration process, is going to be state-of-the-art compared to previous censuses. For example, the records of who needs of the addresses that need an enumerator will be updated in real time. For example, if I'm going out and doing that door-to-door enumeration and on my list on Tuesday, you know, I see that I need to go to a certain house and I don't get to them on Tuesday, and they complete online Tuesday night, then Wednesday I know, and I don't have to go to their house.
1: John, what is an enumerator?
0: So an, an enumerator is basically the staff person that works with the census that does that door-to-door follow-up, talk about the census. Oftentimes that's the, the vision we have in our head is the census worker that goes out and knocks on doors to interview people to complete the census. And So that's a staff position. It's not how most people participate in the census, but it's one of the, the jobs that we th- see through the Census Bureau. The types of things that are happening besides marketing at a grand scale, mass, mass marketing initiatives, first of all, reaching out to what we call trusted voices. Who are the people within communities, whether they're formal or informal leaders, who people will trust to give them information about the census? So it might be through churches. There's faith-based initiatives. We've been working a lot collaboratively with Mississippi State Extension, helping extension agents at the county level to be kind of well-versed on the census and be a trusted voice. Working through different organizations that people might be members of, whether it's their professional associations or community groups or schools. There are efforts called Statistics in Schools and Census in Schools to give this information and engage students with the census as a way to try to get their parents to participate in the census. And so those types of efforts that can be the more localized, the more trust people would have in them is the hope, but also the more sense of civic responsibility and obligation. For example, if my priest tells me I should do something that's a lot different than either a political
1: figure or professor at the university. So people may have heard about the Trump administration's efforts to ask about citizenship on the census. Can you talk about where that stands and what actually, when someone comes, either when you're filling it out online or if an enumerator comes, knocks on your door, what information are they going to gain from you and what happens to that information?
0: The decision around the citizenship question has been decided. There will not be in the 2020 census a citizenship question. The types of questions that are asked we now use in the states, there are some differences in territories, but with the states that we'll use the short form, which is basically asking about age, sex, race, Hispanic status, home ownership, you know, housing tenure and relationship to the householder are the things that people are being asked about. Those data by law are kept confidential for 72 years. Some people who are interested in genealogy and so forth know that you can Look at historical census records, but that's after 72 years in which those are accessible. Those confidential data at that individual level are protected by law. And also that there are kind of institutional barriers within government to prevent use of census data in any way to to harm, you know, for example, potential program beneficiaries and so forth. That there are legal constraints so that people are protected in terms of participating in the census. The data are confidential and cannot be used against them in
1: any way. Hey everybody, this is Jake. Since John and I recorded this conversation, the coronavirus has come and turned all of our lives upside down. As you well know, we're socially distant and isolated at the very moment that the census is trying to count everybody, in fact, required to count everybody. I didn't think our conversation would be complete unless we addressed that. So I reached back out to John to ask him what impact COVID-19 was having on the census. And if you notice that this part of the conversation sounds a little different, uh, well, it's because we're recording it from our homes. And since I imagine that you're probably at home listening right now, uh, I hope you'll understand. Here's what John had to say.
0: So I think the question related to the impact of COVID-19 on the 2020 census is extremely critical. Where we have probably seen the largest impact is in terms of planning for what the face-to-face enumeration will look like, which is, you know, that's through the Census Bureau itself. And then secondly, uh, the impact is on our community engagement uh, activities. The messaging that we're really trying to push through the Census Bureau through our state data center, the, through the statewide and local complete count committees and a variety of other entities that are focusing attention on the 2020 census is that for people to remember that you can participate online, that it is a fairly quick process. You can do it from the comfort of your home and there's, there's no kind of danger as it relates to participating in the census in this time of physical distancing, that being able to do this online is a great asset. Now, that said, we know that there are people who may not be able to participate online because of connectivity issues or because of discomfort in participating through that, through that strategy, and so they can absolutely participate via telephone. There are reminders that are going out, there's going to be the continued option for self-completion in in the mail as well, and uh, and also later in the season that there will be the face-to-face enumerators. That scheduling is being adjusted because of COVID-19 to protect the safety of the public and as well as the enumerators, the census staff themselves. So what we're trying to do in terms of the community engagement and outreach is Basically, to adapt to the changing situation, knowing that people aren't congregating in community meetings and, and as much at churches and through schools and so forth. And so, what we're trying to do is really push on our social media campaigns, as well as our you know really utilizing our networks through all of our organizations. Want to mention that the uh, the focus group, which is a, a firm, a Mississippi firm that is working on the, the PR side to to the 2020 census for Mississippi has been doing a great job in terms of getting messaging out through television, through radio, targeted billboards, but also on social media and uh, and using a variety of different platforms to do that and just kind of constant vigilance of getting the message out day to day and working with what what the census Bureau emphasizes and we do as well trusted voices so for for Mississippians to be speaking to Mississippians about the importance of the census and so we're trying to trying to just ad- adapt again fewer face-to-face community engagement opportunities but really really push pushing everything that we can through social media as well as through our Direct uh, contacts. One of the areas where we're particularly concerned and, and giving special attention to is on how college students who have been displaced by this are supposed to be counted. Uh, college students who who live away live away from, say, their their parents' home, and are away at school are supposed to be counted where they're in school, and uh, and that includes uh, whether they're in group quarters like dorms for example and as well if they are living in apartments or houses other living arrangements in the towns in which their colleges or universities are located and so we're trying to help spread that message of even if you've been displaced uh, where you're supposed to be counted where you live a, a majority of the year a lot of this messaging and dealing with things as they come up day to day is updated on uh, the mississippi specific website for the census that's mscensus2020.org again mscensus2020.org and finally i'll say that you know COVID-19 is a, a great opportunity for us to better understand the importance of having accurate population data. First of all, to connect what what we know about where people are getting tested, what we know about the the rates of infection, to be able to say what are the population characteristics and dynamics of those places. This is of extreme importance to public health uh, officials to have data about the population to help drive decision-making around COVID-19. Secondly, it points to the importance of these data for the resource allocation, resource eligibility through government programs that our counts influence what resources we have in terms of education, in terms of healthcare, in terms of infrastructure that have an impact on our ability, first of all, to be able to adapt and respond to crises like COVID-19, as well as where we're gonna be in the future. So we're experiencing this now, and it's imperative that we don't allow this to have a negative impact on our accounting because it's gonna affect resources over the course of the next decade. So I think that the COVID-19 experience uh, really drives home the importance of understanding our population, documenting our population, and, and being able to make informed decisions on these types of public health matters, as well as we know that this is impacting education, it's impacting business and economic development, that we need to be able to make informed decisions in the Census Bureau and census data are a really important part to that process. Although we do see this impact, we're, we're moving forward and really trying to be responsive to the, to the changing needs.
1: I want to thank Dr. John Green for joining us for parts one and two of this conversation and, and thank you for listening. The editor for this episode of The Guidepost is Courtney Moncher. The show is produced by Todd Stauffer. We invite you to subscribe to the guidepost wherever you find your podcasts or at winterinstitute.org podcast. For all of us at the William Winter Institute, I'm Jake McGraw. We'll see you next time.